you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. First of all, just a brief comment or two on the reading from the Epistle to the Hebrews before I move to focus more on the Gospel As is so often the case with an epistle reading, what we heard today is just one small bit of a much larger and rather sophisticated theological argument. The writer of Hebrews has been drawing on the ancient language and symbolism of priesthood and sacrifice to try to say something about the life and work of Jesus. And here he takes a bit of an unexpected turn in invoking the figure of Melchizedek. Jesus, writes the author of Hebrews, is the high priest, whose priesthood is one of obedience and self-sacrifice. Jesus, says the writer, has been designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is an entirely enigmatic figure, who appears only once in the book of Genesis when he comes to Abraham with words of blessing. Comes out of nowhere, really. And Genesis says, King Melchizedek of Salem brought out bread and wine, and he was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. So he's both king and priest, And one who brought to Abraham not only a blessing, but also bread and wine. And isn't that really rather rich symbolism? The writer of Hebrews makes this very explicit connection between Jesus and this mysterious Melchizedek. And in so doing, he links Jesus' kingship and priesthood to something far more ancient than the priestly lineage in which the temple priests of that day stood. For the author of Hebrews, Jesus' priesthood, and so by implication his kingship as well, is exercised in obedience, in servanthood, and in self-giving sacrifice. Now that's the point where the reading from Hebrews actually begins to link to our text from the Gospel according to Mark around servanthood and self-giving. We open with the account of James and John coming to Jesus to ask if they can sit, one at his right and one at his left hand, in his glory. But to get the full oddness of that question, it's best to back up just a few verses. Jesus has just shared with them his image of how it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom with that crucial additional note that all things are possible in God. And then he has spoken to them of his impending death. Quite clearly, he is headed to his death. He's aware of the rising opposition he's generating among the powers that be, and he knows full well that if they keep trekking toward Jerusalem, they will surely kill him. 
According to Mark's narrative flow, this is the third time he's tried to talk to his disciples about the prospect of his death. The first time he does it, Mark tells us, Peter immediately took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, began to correct him. No, 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 Lord, none of this death talk. We're, we're on a kingdom path here. The second time, Mark says, when he spoke of his death, they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask. And then right away they are arguing amongst themselves as to which of them is the greatest. Now in the case of this third instance of speaking of his death, the only response that James and John can muster is to see about securing for themselves good, solid seats of power and glory in the coming kingdom. Seriously. So like one, two, three, when he talks about death, they're just lost, off in the wrong directions. These lines, comments Robert Capon, these lines are so bizarre that any script writer who tried to get away with them would be told to go back and write something that didn't completely ignore the scene before. It simply screens credulity to think that Jesus' disciples, having heard him predict his death, could so completely gloss over what he said and go blathering on about heavenly seating arrangements. And it is rather what it feels like if you back up and then read it straight through. Who could believe they were that thick in the head? But, Capon continues, but if you understand the disciples as Jesus did, if you see them in the hot light of his certainty, that they do not understand a thing about what he is really doing, the bizarreness of their requests makes perfectly good dramatic sense. They are amazed and they are afraid. They are out of their depth completely. So, just as Peter at the Transfiguration burst out with the first plausible let's get a hold of ourselves idea that came into his head, make three tents, one for Elijah, one for Moses, one for Jesus, James and John put as much distance between themselves and the awful main subject. Let's talk about something more cheerful, they say, hoping perhaps to cheer up Jesus in the process. Let's talk about what it will be like when this is all over. Do you see? Nothing like a good, solid bit of denial to make it all seem easier, smoother, and far more sensible. Let's stop talking about death, Jesus. Let's talk about victory. It's not self-denial, which is what Jesus will, in fact, soon be talking about. It's self-serving denial that James and John bring. Let's talk about what it'll be like when this is all over. Jesus, says Capon, Jesus, however, will not be jollied. He asks them if they are able to drink the cup that he drinks, to be baptized with the baptism with which he's baptized, and when, predictably, they say, 
sure. He lets out a long, resigned breath and says, okay, because that will be exactly what you'll get. I'm into death and resurrection here, and that's all I'm into. The business of who gets the best seats is not my job. It's a funny little aside about this account. As we've heard in in, in Mark's version, it's James and John who come on their own to seek those seats of honor. While in Matthew's account, it's actually their mother who comes with the request. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons. You kind of picture it, right? This, This somewhat meddlesome Jewish mom bringing the boys, maybe by their ears, you know, came to him with their sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked a favor of him. Now, in every other respect, it's pretty much identical, Matthew and Mark's accounts. So it's rather clear that we're we're not dealing with two different instances, but rather two versions of the same. So what's going on? Did the two gospel writers inherit slightly different versions from the oral tradition? Did Matthew, who writes just a bit later than Mark, maybe 10 years, did Matthew wish to cut James and John a bit of slack and place more blame on dear old mom? We can't know for sure, but whatever the case, here in Mark, it's rather clear. James and John are in full denial mode, madly trying to get Jesus' teaching to conform with their own biased beliefs as to what a self-respecting Messiah should offer to his loyal followers. Of course, it isn't just James and John or dear old mom who so expertly missed the point because after he has the little discussion with them, when the ten heard this, they began to get angry with James and John. How dare those two be so presumptuous? Which has about it the ring of, who do they think they are? And why didn't we think about asking for those seats before they did? Hmm. Deep sigh. Once again, Jesus has to call the twelve in, sit them down, and again go over the heart of his calling with them which is probably best summarized by a quote from the Dominican priest and theologian Herbert McCabe, who says, In Christianity, the heart of the gospel, if you do not love, you will not be alive. If you love effectively, you will be killed. If you do not love, you will not be alive. If you love effectively, You will be killed. That was their reality. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And why is this? Because, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. It's why I'm doing all this death talk, guys. This is all about emptying myself, giving myself, serving 
from a bottomless place into your lives and the life of the world? Well, in all truth, I suspect that as he was telling them this, there were still 12 slack-jawed and uncomprehending faces all around that circle. So much easier if Jesus would just conform to their more conventional understanding of what a Messiah was to be about. Give us victory over the Romans. Free us from the injustices and inequities of our society, of this social order. Even cleanse that temple for heaven's sake. And we'll do our best to walk right alongside of you through it all. And then, then when you've won in that way, good seats, maybe? Disciples are not, of course, the last ones to want to try to conform the Jesus way to their own hopes, their own biases, their own interpretations. Time and again it has happened over the 2,000 years that the church has been stumbling around trying to get itself on the right track. We have all manner of strange alliances in our long history. As the church got into bed with the state to champion so-called religious wars, to bless them, to persecute people who believed differently, to head out on ill-fated crusades, and, in our more recent history, to help run a residential school system designed to remove the Indian from the child. That was its goal. All of those things are instances of the church paying little attention to what Jesus was actually calling his people to do and to be. Instead, looking for techniques to manage our way into glory seats in the kingdom, to run the society according to good Christian principles which we somehow have filtered out of the good Christian gospel. Of course, we in our own ways can do a bit of it too which is precisely why we need to keep placing ourselves under stories like this one. To watch as James and John stumble up with their dumb question, to listen as Jesus responds, to see the other ten react in in, in indignation, to watch again as Jesus gathers them and sits them down and yet again talks about servanthood. Whoever wishes to become great among us, well, servanthood. Whoever wishes to be first among us, slave of all. And if we're all living servanthood, well, that could be something, couldn't it? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.